Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, Psalm 95, verses 6 through 11, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, and John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. It's popular to bash Hollywood these days, and they do deserve it. But for all their privilege, smugness, and debauchery, they do on occasion produce a movie that stirs the soul. A heroic death scene can bring one to tears. I think of movies like Braveheart, Gladiator, and Gran Torino, where the main character dies at the end of the movie fighting for an important cause. Or there was the movie We Were Soldiers, where the wives took on the duty of delivering death notices to their fellow wives. I get choked up right now just thinking about it. Such courage, such devotion, it's truly inspirational. And yet, none of these deaths come close to the death of Christ on the cross for us. Why? What makes that death so unique? Our epistle lesson today gives us the answer. Romans 5.8, in my opinion, is one of the apex verses of the entire Bible. If you haven't already, I encourage you to memorize it. Today, we're going to use verse 8 as the key to understand the entire first half of chapter 5. To review, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are going to look deep into God's love, our sinful state, and Christ's death. After going through these elements, we will understand what makes the death of our Savior so unique and why it should cause us to both lament and rejoice. Starting with God's love, verse 5 states, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is a very vivid image. We can all imagine water being poured out of a pitcher. There are a couple things that we can draw from this. First, it's not a mere trickle. When something is poured out, there's an abundance of it. Second, whatever is being poured into is empty at the time. A full vessel cannot be poured into, right? Before we know Jesus, our hearts can't possibly be full. How could they be? When we don't even have love for the one who created us, for the one we were designed to love. So we receive an abundance of God's love flowing into our lives that were once dry and empty. I think I should also clarify that this is God's love for us. This is not our love for God or for others, though ultimately it has that result. He loves us so much that his love flows into our hearts and fills them. Do you know what happens then? Our hearts overflow with love for each other. Love doesn't stay put. It spreads. Love can be like a positive pandemic spreading from one person to another. But only a holy love can do this. 
the true love that has Yahweh as its source. The Greek word for has been poured into only appears one other time in the New Testament, and there it is also related to the work of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10.45, Luke writes, the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the Gentiles also. In fact, some biblical scholars believe that by the time Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, that specific word was already closely associated with the work of the Holy Spirit among Christians. And the activity of the Holy Spirit was thought to be a sign of God's eschatological movement towards the eventual redemption of all things. This was not strictly a Christian belief. The Jews also believed that the new age would be marked by the activity of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes that God's love is being poured out through the Holy Spirit, the new age for which the Jews have been waiting has arrived. It was brought in by Jesus. The evidence is everywhere. The Holy Spirit's activity is also marked that's also the mark of belonging to Christ. And here in Romans, we read that it is through the activity of the Holy Spirit that God's love is poured out on those who belong to him. I think this also directly relates with the next verse, which says, Christ died for us while we were still weak. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? Paul doesn't say, while we were unloving which would make sense based on verse 5. Nor does he say, while we were lost in our sin. Instead, he says, while we were weak. I think the explanation comes from the context. God's love in our hearts makes us strong. Soldiers who love their comrades in arms and their countries will do the most incredible feats of bravery. Those who love deeply can withstand the most. So verse 6 is describing our state prior to God pouring his love into our hearts. We weren't just dry, empty vessels. We were weak as well. Or as the original Greek says, we were without strength. We couldn't help ourselves get out of our own spiritual desert. This leads perfectly into Paul's next point from verse 8. While we were yet sinners. Just as with our state of weakness before being redeemed, our state as sinners has everything to do with chronology. When we were weak was when Christ died for us. When we were sinners was when Christ died for us. Or as verse 10 puts it most starkly, while we were enemies, we were weak, we were sinners, we were enemies of God. Not the bunch you would expect someone to die for. There are two points I want to make here. First, that all changed after his death and resurrection redeemed us. As I already said, love makes us strong instead of weak. God pouring his love into our hearts when we were saved gives us the spiritual strength to love, forgive, and serve others and God. 
we are no longer weak. When we accept Christ into our hearts, making his death effectual for us, we are no longer characterized as sinners. We still struggle with sin, but for the first time, instead of being utterly trapped by it, we now know we can have victory, and we know where to turn when temptation strikes. We aren't in this alone anymore. And most of all, we now have a reason to stand up and fight. Because we want to return the love that Christ first showed us. And that love isn't lost if we sin again. This isn't love we have to earn. Knowing that God isn't going to remove his love if we sin again gives us the assurance that we can't lose. Christ is with us no matter what. Finally, being redeemed by Christ means that we are no longer enemies. We are now allies. Christ has recruited us into his army, and we willingly accept his battle plan laid out for us in Scripture. Our mission is a search and rescue, to go find those who want out of enemy territory and bring them to our heavenly commander. My second point is that Jesus literally died for his enemies. While we were in our state of sin, we were openly rebelling against God. We didn't want anything to do with him. I think the image in Revelation 19, 19 is so powerful because when the world finally knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ really is king, instead of begging for forgiveness, they curse in anger and prepare for war. There is no better image of being enemies than that. But even now, we can see the world around us is at odds with what God wants. That is why Romans 5.1 is so powerful. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are justified are at peace with God. The war is over. This leads us to the final aspect of Romans 5.8, which is Christ died for us. Let me start by saying that this is probably the most obvious, most repeated concept in all of Christianity. We've heard it a million times. And because of that, it has lost its power for us. We hear it and move on without really appreciating the unimaginable depth of passion and sacrifice that this entails. The death of our Lord and Savior on the cross is filled with far more pathos than anything Hollywood can dream up. It would be a bit like Abraham Lincoln's son offering up his life for the Confederacy. Such a thing is simply unthinkable. Verses 6 and 7 illuminate this unimaginable act of love for Paul's audience. In verse 6, we have the statement that Christ died for the ungodly. Contrasted with verse 7, where we read, One will hardly die for a righteous man. 
We were utterly undeserving of God's mercy, and yet Christ died for us. For whom would you die? For your spouse? For your children? I imagine the list is quite short. Paul makes the point that very few people would be willing to give up their life even for someone who was godly, and we were anything but godly. So what do we do? What do we do with this? We've been given this inconceivable gift that we can't ever hope to deserve. How do we respond? Service to God? Certainly. Worship? Indeed. But there are two primary attitudinal responses. The first is to lament. Paul doesn't mention this one in today's reading, but I believe it is a necessary precursor to the second response that he does emphasize. We lament our rebellion against God. We lament that he had to die for us, for you and for me personally. This is why we all shout on Palm Sunday, crucify him, crucify him. We may not have been in that crowd on that day in Jerusalem, but we have said it in our hearts every time we turn our back on God, every time we sin. Each and every one of us put him on that cross. We also lament the damage our sin has done to others and to our relationships. We lament the opportunities lost due to the negative consequences of our sin. We have much to lament. We would rather skip this part. We don't like lament. We're not even good at it. I've been told that as part of the American psychological makeup, that we are an optimistic bunch. We tend not to dwell on the negative aspects of life. While that's all fine, Without fully acknowledging our own lostness and guilt, we can't possibly love the one who died to save us. Without sin, there's no Savior. Without Good Friday, there's no Easter. But because there is an Easter, grief over our own sins doesn't leave us in lament. It lifts us out. We are transported from lamenting to rejoicing. That is the response that Paul emphasizes in today's reading. He uses the word rejoice three times in this pericope. In verse 2, we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. In verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he reconciled us. But most interestingly of all, in verse 3, it says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Show of hands, who rejoices in their sufferings? No? It's not easy to do, is it? But that seems to be what Paul is saying. He is definitely not saying to go seek out suffering. What he is saying is that even human suffering has been redeemed by Christ. For the Christian, suffering can produce spiritual fruit. Nietzsche famously said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Stronger 
for what? To do what? Apart from Christ, human suffering has no eternal significance. But through Jesus, even suffering has been redeemed. Therefore, we have nothing to fear, even in this life. I know this is Lent, but this is an exceedingly uplifting message from Paul. As we prepare to receive communion, we should recapture the awe in Christ's death for us. God pours his love abundantly into our dry, empty, weak hearts, transforming us from the weak into the strong, from the lost into the righteous, and from enemies into believers and followers. And the incredible passion of Jesus led him to die for his enemies in order to reclaim them as his own. As a result, we are called to lament our role in our Savior's death to redeem us, but at the same time rejoice over God's love for us. We also rejoice in the redemptive power of our suffering. And during this season of Lent, when we attempt in the smallest of ways to enter into Christ's suffering, let us receive the elements of his spiritual flesh and blood to be reminded of his suffering and to be empowered to live for him until that day we see Christ face to face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.